morning, everybody. It is great to see you on this week heading into Thanksgiving. We have a lot of things to be thankful for, don't we? The Lord is so kind to us, and I just think about uh, the baptisms, the number of people that God is changing and growing the baptisms we had last week in the life of our church and more baptisms next week. I think about all these little kids up here and how the Lord is multiplying our families and giving us uh, great blessings in those little people. There's so much to be thankful for. I just hope that you guys have a great Thanksgiving week with your families as you celebrate God's goodness to you. As we return our attention to the way that God changes us, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and to open with me to John chapter 4. Today we are continuing in our series that we're calling Life Giver, and this is part two of the sermon that we heard last week in John chapter 4. And this morning what I want to do is I want to read uh, the entirety of John 4, 1 to 45 uh, for us together, because as we read this story in its entirety, you see some things that are connected that you don't get to see when you read it in just small chunks. And so this is what I need from you. I need you to exercise mental concentration because if you're anything like me, I know at about verse 21, you're gonna start to think about football or Thanksgiving turkey or something else. And so 45 verses, it's a long stretch. I want you to stick with me all the way through and having your Bible open to page 888 and following along will help you do that. This is what it says, John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and, said, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to all the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, not, do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, that you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Hunger and thirst, living water, lasting food, eternal life. The Gospel of John presents Jesus as the one who gives life. He's the life giver. Without him, you can't have life. With him, you can have life and have it to the full. With him, you can have life and have eternal life. And so it makes sense that if Jesus is the life giver, that he would use categories of our most fundamental desire and need. Thirst and hunger, water and food to help us understand what it means to have life. 
You can't live without water. And you can't live without food. And so Jesus points us to an even greater expression of living water and lasting food that gives us life. And so let me briefly show you the flow of the interaction here and remind us of a couple of things that we saw in the interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well as we move toward the second half of the chapter. We see that Jesus is the one who gives living water. And that living water quenches the thirst of our souls. Jesus interacts and he pursues this woman at the well and he offers her this living water. And then we see kind of in the middle section there that he reveals what true worship really is and where it happens and how it relates to life. In the third part, he teaches his disciples about food, lasting food from God. And then we see the story conclude with many Samaritans who are converted to believe that he is the savior of the world. And there's this progression of recognition that happens, particularly with the woman at the well. She, other than Jesus, becomes the central character of what's going on here. And as she interacts with Jesus, we see that she moves and even matures in her perspective of who he is. She starts with a bunch of, of, of polite titles for him. And then by the end, she's referring to him in ways and in titles that would communicate that she has faith or belief in him. Just look at a couple with me. We see that Jesus is introduced in verse 6 by his name being called Jesus. And then he seeks the woman out, and the woman refers to him as a Jew in verse 9. And then as sir or Lord, a common title of respect in verse 11 and verse 15 and 19. But then as Jesus talks to her more and he moves from what's going on on the outside, this woman of Samaria, and he starts to talk about what's really happening on the inside of her life and of her heart and of her marriages and her past and how that indicates a level of thirst, she calls him a prophet in verse 19. And the story continues, and they start to talk about the nature of worship and connecting the fact that this man is clearly quite remarkable, and now he's saying things about the worship of God himself. We see that he is referred to, or she at least connects him to the idea that the Messiah is coming. Verse 25. And by the end of their interaction, she runs off to the town. She tells everybody that she knows, who is this? Could he possibly be the Christ? the one we've been waiting for, the Savior. She moves from titles that are polite and interactive to titles of belief and faith in who Jesus is. And part of the reason why she does that is because Jesus overcomes in her very midst a number of obstacles. You remember this if you were here last week. Jesus pursues this woman even though on the outside she's the wrong kind, and even though on the inside she is the wrong kind. I mean, she's an unclean woman. She's a half-breed Samaritan. She's a heretic in her beliefs, and she is an adulterer in her personal life. And yet, despite all of those things, he offers her living water. The water that quenches 
a thirsty soul. And this powerful interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well, we see that the conversation changes rather abruptly two times. Did you see it when we read it a minute ago? Jesus offers her living water and she says, yeah, where, where can I find that? And he says, go get your husband. Sort of a weird, abrupt change. And they never come back to living water again, the rest of the interaction. But he does that with one question. He cuts to the quick of her greatest hurts, her greatest needs, her greatest thirst to get to the inside of who she is and to prove that despite the depths of her sin, he is still going to offer her living water. Jesus knows the inside of you, every little bit of you. And despite the ugliest parts, he's still pursuing you. And the offer for living water stands for you to drink. The second abrupt change happens as they're speaking in verses 19 and 20. Jesus asks her about her husbands. She says, I have no husband. She's dodging the question. He says, you're right, you've had five husbands. And now you're with another man who's not your husband. And she says in verse 19 and 20, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship God. That seems rather odd, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right, Jesus. I've had five failed marriages, and now I have a living boyfriend. Hey, where do you think we should worship? But Jesus goes with it. Because even though she recognizes something unique about him, and she's running from the penetrating question as far as she can by changing the subject, he goes with it because he recognizes that the core of what's going on inside of here and the nature of true worship and the recognition of him being the Messiah and the gift of living water are all inextricably linked. Now remember the nature of that little conflict. As an aside, the Jews worship God in the temple of Jerusalem. The Samaritans had historically set up an alternate temple on Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritan fathers worshipped there. The Jewish fathers worshipped in Jerusalem. And this continued on down through the ages. And Jesus says to her that this argument about Gerizim or Jerusalem is really only marginal in its effect. Because all of it, as of right now, this very minute, is going to be replaced. And so he says, look with me, verse 24, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. What does that mean? Well, I think we can derive some understanding on that controlling phrase right there in the middle. For the Father is spirit. What is he saying? He goes, they're arguing about a place to worship, and Jesus says, God is spirit. 
That means God is everywhere. God's not confined to a place, this place or that place. He's spirit. That means that he can be worshipped everywhere by all people at all times. And he reveals himself in truth. And therefore he must be worshipped in truth. To be worshipped in truth means that to be rightly worshipped, he must be worshipped in line with what he reveals about himself. Now that's really important to pause and to grasp for a second. We don't worship God simply in the ways that we want to or for what we want to. We worship God based on what he reveals about himself. Throughout history, there's been a lot of people that have worshipped God by mixing ideas from different religions on what they want God to be like. Samaritans did this. A lot of us are tempted to do this. To mix the things of God that we hear about here and draw from there and draw from here and think about there. I want God to respond this way in that situation. I want God to look like that thing. I want God to be in that place. I want God to like that music. So I have the propensity to worship God's attributes that I like in that place, in that manner that I like. And when I do that, who does God start to look like? Well, he starts to look like me. And what do you call it when you recraft the image of God into something else? call that idolatry. But Jesus says, no longer will God be worshipped on Mount Gerizim or worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. He will be worshipped in spirit and truth. And that truth is known by how God is revealing himself. And how is God revealing himself to this woman at the well? Jesus says, I am he. And immediately the disciples return. She goes off to tell everybody she can find about what she knows and she invites them to come and see. The one that knows everything about her and the one who has just defined for her what true worship of God looks like and it looks like him. Because it is him. And the scene changes. The disciples had gone off to get food. All of them had gone off to get food. It's a bit peculiar that all of them had to go get food. Certainly they didn't need to all go, but Jesus had a divine appointment with this woman. And so they return to give food to Jesus, and his response shows to them that he's not done yet. He's not done getting to the core of revealing himself in the light of our basic human need. And so they say, Rabbi, eat. Verse 31, and look with me, verse 32, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they say, 
are you talking about? Where did he get food from? We just went off to get food because he didn't have food, and now he comes back and he has food? Where did he get the food from? What kind of food is he talking about here? I don't get it. And he says, you're right. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now think about the word picture. Food is for nourishment and strength. You eat food when you're hungry, and when you do, you are strengthened to accomplish the task that lies in front of you. And so Jesus says that his food is to do God's work. That is what satisfies his hunger. That is what strengthens him. And it strengthens him to do God's work. Wait a minute. So food is God's work so that he can accomplish God's work? Is that what he's saying? Doing God's will helps him continue to do God's will? That's exactly what he's saying. <laughs> and in this sense, it's a lot like the living water, isn't it, that we saw in verse 14? I mean, look, with, look back with me at verse 14. He says, whoever drinks of this living water I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The living water that he offers to people who don't know him, to people who need him, who people who need to be forgiven, this living water is self-replicating so that the thirsts of your life will be met with a constant draw on Jesus himself, and it will satisfy a thirsty soul. Are you thirsty? <laughs> The living water is right there for you to be satisfied. And now, likewise, he is saying that doing God's will helps him do God's will. It's self-replicating in its nature. And so what is God's work and what is God's will? Well, Jesus expresses this all throughout the Gospel of John. One such, you'll see in the screen behind me, chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the will of the Father for the Son is to seek and to save the lost. It is to give eternal life. It's to lose no people that God has given him, but to give them eternal life, to raise them up on the last day. And in giving them eternal life, the Father is glorified through the work of the Son. And Jesus now here is announcing, this is my mission, this is my purpose. I'm starting something that will not be stopped. I'm going to be giving people eternal life. And as I do, I'm doing the will of the Father. And as I give it, I give it more. I'm strengthened, I'm sustained to keep giving it. <laughs> but let's pause for a second and see what that means for us. He's using language of our most primal human needs and desires. Food and water. <laughs> our most fundamental desire, thirst, 
and hunger. He's pointing to our greater needs. You can't live without water and you cannot live without food. Friends, in so many ways, we are like the woman at the well. In so many ways, always thirsty yet never being fulfilled. Maybe it's not five failed marriages or five husbands, but we pursue all kinds of things to scratch the itch, to meet the desire, to satisfy thirst that only God himself can satisfy. The next pleasurable moment, the next moment of adulation, the next material possession, the next trophy on the wall, and all of it is good for a minute. And then we're thirsty again. But Jesus offers thirst to be quenched with living water. Water that keeps on giving as you put your faith in him, as he forgives you, and as he gives you eternal life. You don't need to stay at that well. He gives you a better one. And it's interesting that he saves the second of our fundamental desires, hunger. How he saves that one for a teaching with his followers. Did you notice that? It doesn't take long to know how much hunger we as Christians still have. It's very real. It's very powerful. And friends, I have met so many Christians who are hungry. But they don't pursue lasting food. I wonder if you might be one. A person who knows Jesus, who's tasted the living water, who has the promise of eternal life, but they're unsatisfied because you're not eating real food. (laughs) There's a great analogy in here like my three-year-old who every night at dinner does not want to eat what's on the table in front of him and then every night he goes to bed hungry. Except on those rare nights when he takes the advice of mom and dad and says, that's what you have to eat, and eat it. And he goes, oh, that's good. This is like the young Christian who does not eat real food because they're not doing the work of the father. But for those who actually taste the real food, they go, oh, wow, I don't know why I waited so long to have this food. It's really good. Perhaps your dissatisfaction or your hunger is showed in boredom. Perhaps it's shown itself in apathy. Perhaps your dissatisfaction is shown in the fact that you go back and seek the things that you used to seek before you knew Jesus. The things that you thought would satisfy you and now you're trying to help them or make them satisfy you again. But all of that points to just a dissatisfaction with what you're doing and it shows that you're hungry. (laughs) And so follow the example of Jesus here. If his food 
is to do the work of the Father, then your food is to do the work of the Father. And if you don't, you will never be satisfied in this life. What is his work for you? Is it the same as it is for his son? Not entirely, but there's a whole lot of overlap there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's God's will that you grow in holiness. That you grow. Of course, this growth comes as you grow in your knowledge of him and his works and his ways through his word, as you fight against sin, as you pursue faithfulness to him in every area of your life, both outside and inside here. But it also comes in participating in the very thing that Jesus is talking to about his disciples right here. The food that he's talking about right here is investing in other people for the sake of the gospel. This is your food. Hungry Christians, bored Christians, dissatisfied Christians should start investing in other people for the work of God. That is your food. Investing in people for the sake of the gospel is food. So you might say when you take all of chapter 4 together, you're saying that Jesus provides satisfaction for the thirst of the soul and satisfaction for the hunger of life. Everybody's heard the phrase, you are what you eat. (laughs) I think of the news article that came out some time ago of the ranchers and their prized beef cattle known as Wagyu who go to great lengths to enhance an already legendary flavor of their beef. Many use the typical fattening agents in their feed to achieve a certain amount of marbling, which enhances the look and keeps the beef moist. But an Australian ranch called Mayura Station produces Wagyu beef with a distinct sweet taste to it. And the secret is in the special blend of cattle feed, which uses copious amounts of sweetening agents, or as most of it would most of us would call it candy. They feed the cows candy. To the envy of every 10-year-old in the world, the cattle at Mayura Station bred as Wagyu subsist on a diet of chocolate and cookies and candy, often sold as irregular expired stock from brand name factories like Cadbury. The regular feed, of course, is much more pedestrian. It's wheat and hay and ryegrass and maize. But candy mix is the special addition that the cattle eat for the last few months of their life before they're processed. The unorthodox approach appears to be working. The most choice cuts of Wagyu beef from Mayura Station can retail for as much as $300 a pound. turns out you really are what you eat. (laughs) So Christian, what are you eating? Are you eating real food to do the will and 
work of God. Look at what Jesus says to encourage them to this end. It should encourage you. Look at verse 35. He says to them, do you not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. A couple of things come to mind. First, we see that the long view is required for faithfulness in this service to God in evangelism. Results are not the metric for success. Faithfulness is. He recognizes that there's probably implicitly here a reason for discouragement, right? Sowing without reaping. Sharing the gospel without seeing conversions. How many of you have ever felt in your life like, man, I just keep sowing seeds and never a harvest? I know I have. And that can be incredibly discouraging. But conversely, he gives reason for encouragement. You reap what you haven't sown. Others have sown the seeds of the gospel to people and you come in with little or no work and get to experience all the joy that happens when somebody puts their faith in Christ through a conversation with you. And so you have to have the long view, the big picture that God is the one who's doing these things. And so missionary Corey Tenboom recounts a letter from one missionary who wrote her and says, sometimes adversity tempts me to discouragement in the face of seeing failure. But I take courage and I press on anew as I remember that God does not hold me responsible for success, but for faithfulness. Second, from this short teaching, we see that the reason that we can have this long view is because God is sovereign over all the results, that Jesus is the one who saves, that he doesn't let any who the Father has given him be lost or fallen, that at the completion of time, God will have accomplished his will to the full. (laughs) And we get to play a part in it for a short season that he has us here. But third, we see in God's sovereignty that he actually expedites the process. Look with me, verse 35. He says, do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? I tell you, look up right now, the harvest is white. What's he referring to? Who is he referring to? He's referring to the woman who just left five minutes ago after being met at the well, went back, a whole, told the whole village, and now a whole bunch of them are coming back to recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world. It's amazing. That the reaper, the sower and the reaper come together all at the same time. And this is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos chapter 9. God said that in, this, in his kingdom will, these things will happen according to his sovereign purposes. Look at this. It says, hundreds of years before Jesus came. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, the, him who sows the seed. And the mountain shall drip sweet wine. 
and the hills shall flow from it. What is he saying? He's saying that it doesn't take a natural germination process for the seed to move from planting to harvest. It means that God brings the sower and the reaper together in his own sovereign purposes that from the very moment someone can hear the gospel, they could become saved if he so desires it. In the kingdom of Jesus, the sower and the reaping of souls for the harvest of God are brought into one. Only Jesus can do that. And he calls us to take a part of it. And when we do, it's food for us. Jesus provides satisfaction for thirst of the soul and satisfaction for hunger of life. And the story ends with the Samaritans coming back and exercising true faith. The woman went and told them to come and see. Come and see the one that I saw. Come and hear the things that I've heard. Come and see this one who's the Christ. It's not coincidence that this idea of coming and seeing is not the first time we've heard it in this Gospel of John. The disciples, when they were first called, went to their brothers and to their friends and said, hey, come and see this guy. Meeting Jesus personally is part of faith in him. And they make this profession of faith. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. And we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. These people didn't need to see a miracle. They heard the testimony. They met the Messiah. They put their faith in him as Savior. And right there, they received living water. (laughs) And the disciples saw the white harvest being harvested right before their eyes. And right there, they witnessed lasting food. And the Samaritans and the Jews are now worshiping together. And right there, they experienced what it meant to worship in spirit and in truth. Because Jesus provides satisfaction for the thirst of the soul and satisfaction for the hunger of life. So the question is, is are you feeding on the work of God? I close with this. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. (laughs) A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably... Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Hunger, thirst, living water, lasting food desires of life and only Jesus provides satisfaction for the thirst of your soul and for the hunger of this life
Let's pray and thank him for that. Lord God, we ask for your forgiveness for the many times that we seek to satisfy our thirst through other means. God, we ask for your forgiveness for living in an ongoing hunger for life expressed in all kinds of ways, boredom, apathy, sinful temptation, and on, instead of feeding on the work that you have us to do. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus, how we need not thirst any longer or live in emaciating hunger. That through knowing him and loving him and following him, we can have true satisfaction. Amen.